Hey everyone, a quick note before we start today's episode, I want to point you to our brand new website at guiltgracepod.com for all things guilt, grace, gratitude, all of our podcasts, their categories by type, by episode, by season, by author, by topics, by all those good things. So everything guilt, grace, gratitude podcast you can find at guiltgracepod.com. Dot com, as well as our brand new confessional podcast network, which will be housed at confessionalpods.com. We have our inaugural sets of podcasts who have joined us, and we have more who are coming on board pretty soon. And you can also find the confessional podcast network on anywhere good podcasts are found. If you guys can help us in any way financially, go to guiltgracepod.com to give and donate. We have a lot of big plans for 2023 and beyond. and We would love for you to partner and support and build this bridge to confessional reform theology with us. Now, let's get on to this episode. Yeah, so so the issue ends up being not, not now what we believe about the text, because we believe it's it, it, it's inspired, it's authoritative, it's for us. But rather, what are we doing as readers yeah. who facilitate a, our understanding of of these principles and apply our understanding of these principles? And and here's one of the things I think, first and foremost, as it relates to these difficult sections of the Torah, especially that we are not sufficiently reading them as part of ancient Israel's narrative. Welcome to the Guilt, Grace, Gratitude podcast featuring Peter Bell and Nick Fulweiler. This is a show about Christian doctrine for everyone from the historic Reformed tradition, delivered by two friends in an unscripted dialogue. Join us as we discuss how the finished work of Jesus Christ changes everything. Hello, everyone. Yet once again, it's another day of fresh grace and mercy. This is the Guilt, Grace, Gratitude podcast sponsored by Logos Bible Software, where we bridge the gap to Reformed Christian theology for your listening pleasure. And today is a book club episode with Dominic Hernandez. We're talking about his new book published by Baker Academic, Engaging the Old Testament, How to Read Biblical Narrative, Poetry, and Prophecy Well. So there is a link in our show notes. If you click on it, it'll take you to Baker Academic and straight to that book so you can get it for yourself. And there was, a, for book club episodes, if I find an endorsement of a guest we've had on our show before, and they wrote an endorsement for a book uh, that we're doing, then I read it. And so Tom Schreiner, he wrote an endorsement for Dominic's book, and I'll read it right now. Tom Schreiner says this about the book, reading and interpreting the Old Testament is a daunting task since the writings are over 2,000 years old and since they come from a culture dramatically different from ours. Hernandez provides expert guidance in understanding narrative, poetry, and prophecy. Hernandez wisely admonishes us to read the biblical text slowly and the, and the book is stocked with examples where the author has clearly followed his own dictum. This is not an ordinary textbook because it, is only, because it not only provides wise guidance for beginners, but also offers bold interpretations that will provoke the most experienced reader to reflect anew on the biblical text. This is an ideal textbook for both new 
students and for those who want something fresh and challenging. So I will let Peter further introduce Dominic Hernandez today. Yeah, we have Dr. Dominic Hernandez, who is Associate Professor of Old Testament and Semitics at Talbot School of Theology, Biola University, if you guys know, this is my alma mater in La Mirada, California, previously taught at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, Moody Bible Institute, and Israel College of the Bible. <clears throat> Hernandez preaches and gives seminars and is the author of four books. He also has served in English, Spanish, and Hebrew language ministries in the U.S. and abroad. It's a pleasure having you on the show, Dr. Hernandez. Thank you very much, gentlemen. It's an honor to be with you. Of course, yeah. So the first question is not on the, the list I send, um, but I, I'm assuming nobody knows this about you besides those who know you, is you are a Spanish speaker who also speaks fluent Hebrew. Can you maybe tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so... Um, uh, let's say 15 or 16 years ago, I was, I, I went to a school of ministry and the school of ministry, um, had a professor there that studied at the Hebrew university of Jerusalem. And immediately uh -huh. that professor helped me understand how closely modern Hebrew and biblical Hebrew were related. Huh. It's something that I didn't expect to be yeah. honest with you going into the school. I was expecting a sort of a very uh, de you know, deductive approach where you learn, the, like, sort of like you learn biblical yeah. languages in many sure. seminaries, right? You learn the rules and then you try to put the rules together. And this professor taught in a way that expected the students to, under to, to learn inductively. Yep. And as a result of that, I started to fall in love not only with biblical Hebrew, but with modern Hebrew at the same time. And so several years later, when it came time to apply for uh, the PhD, I applied um, to Bar-Ilan University in the Tel Aviv metropolitan area in Israel, was accepted and moved there and lived in Israel for five years with my family, and that's when the modern Hebrew really picked up. Uh-huh. So that's, uh, that, uh, that kind of covers, but maybe to go a little bit more in depth to our, our first real question is, for those who don't know you, um, don't know your work, and don't know what you do, maybe provide a little bit of background on yourself, um, your work, and uh, all that fun stuff. Well, yeah, so... Um, couple of other sort of tidbits, and that is um, uh, been married for 20 years with Gabby, who's from Mexico. I'm Puerto nice. Rican, so my family is from from Puerto Rico. What part of Mexico is she from? She's from Guadalajara, Jalisco, Mexico. Okay. She's a okay. tapatilla. Yep. Uh, so we met in Puerto Rico when we were studying at the University of Puerto Rico. We've been married for 20 years. Uh, we have two children. My family's from Puerto Rico. Her, She is from Mexico. Uh, we met in Puerto Rico. We moved stateside. We got married. Uh, have two children, and um, one of our children was born in North America, but then we moved immediately to Israel. And the other one was born in Israel, and we moved huh. then back to North America. And so uh, I, I tend to tell people when I speak in congregations or even introduce myself to my classes that we we don't have a passport that has any country, but rather we have a passport that just says confused across the front, <laughs> because that's basically uh, who we are at this point. But um, So that's a little bit of the family makeup. Uh, got very interested in Old Testament, as I shared very briefly, very briefly with you at the at the school of ministry that I went to, and then ultimately um, uh, began working as a professor of Old Testament, and I and I'm currently an associate professor of Old Testament and Semitics at Talbot, as you said, uh, most mostly interested in Semitic philology, though mm -hmm. I. I, uh, I, I do think that people that do things like Semitic philology need to distill their work for people <laughs> yeah. that are just lovers of the Bible, right? Not just yeah. lovers of the Bible, but True. lovers True. of the Bible. Yep. And so 
um, I, I, some of my work, I think, reflects reflects that. But I love mm-hmm. uh, Semitics is really what I what I love to get what I love to study on my in my spare time. Awesome. That's I'd great. like to know in your household how was watching the World Baseball Classic with <laughs> Mexico and Puerto Rico. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, Israel That's Mexico right. versus the U.S. You're like, oh my gosh, Israel Puerto so, Rico. Yeah. A yeah. couple of things. So we could have rooted for a num- We could have rooted for you know several teams. We yeah. live in North America, obviously, so we could have rooted for the U.S. Yeah. My wife is from Mexico. She didn't really follow baseball until the World Baseball Classic That's, happened. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Obviously, I'm diehard Puerto Rico. Right. Yeah. Uh-huh. Of course. My, my children have this connection to Israel. Yeah. And so when Israel was playing, especially when they beat Nicaragua. That was a pretty, you know, even though we're Spanish speakers, we're Latinos. That's, that's we were true. very prideful. We were very proud that uh, many of our, our, our North American Jewish friends that play baseball, as well as the Israelis, were, were happy that day. So, uh, but no, in, in my mind and heart, there was no crisis of conscience. I was 100% rooting for Puerto Rico uh, and 100% pride when Mexico. I was about them. to say, yeah, they got <laughs> upset by yeah. Mexico. Yeah, Sorry, I brought still that sort up. Of crying, so <laughs> want to keep talking about this. We might want to end this interview now. That's, yeah. That's right. Sorry, yeah. I brought that up, oh, but I had to know, that's man. Right. Yeah, and then USA <clears throat> put a pounding. Oh my gosh! And then they got beat by Japan. But that, that was, was a great. The World Baseball Classic is amazing. Best thing that ever happened for professional <clears throat> baseball, I think. Yeah. Oh yeah, good. and I think 2020. Those who are waiting for all this Old Testament stuff, we'll get there, but. The, the World Baseball Classic, like I feel, because I've watched every single one since 06. Yeah. Um, I was played baseball, huge baseball fan. I played baseball at Biola. Um, but it was, uh, there was something different about 23. Yeah. It was not true really of the, the previous four. Mm. I'm yeah. not really, I'm not really sure what it was, or previous, uh, yeah, previous four. It was just a constant um, buzz, constant <clears throat> excitement. Every, it really was, yeah. Every mm-hmm. single pitch felt like it was important. Every single out felt like it was important. It was just a, and the and lots of the best players from these countries played. Oh, that's, and the talent has been, you know, that's really true. evenly distributed more so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So just think about like, they you know the Puerto Rico and Dominican Republic have always been powerhouses, but Venezuela is a major baseball. Yeah, player, they are. Right? Yeah. Like, so. Anyway, you're right. We could continue to talk about this instead of the Old Testament stuff if we want. <laughs> one more, <laughs> but one more plug. We'll, about this? We'll, inter- we'll intersperse it. We'll like. Like well. seventh inning stretches. But, I mean, one more plug about that. It's amazing to see some of the countries that you normally would not think that baseball really got into, like Israel and Italy and Czech Republic. Some, yeah. some of these countries are like, oh, in the U.K. even. And you're like, they're mm-hmm. playing, they have actually a baseball squad. It's a really so, good thing, I think. It's yeah. a really good thing for the game. Everybody really thought they were playing soccer, and they went to the fields. Like, oh, they're playing baseball there. That's right. <laughs> so switching that over from – making the the baseball around the world into every country will make the gospel around the world in every country oh, look at that transition. bridge bridge this in and so into my first question um switching gears we'll see how good i do so <clears throat> talking about the old testament obviously a lot of christians have a difficult time even getting into the old testament to begin with i think a lot of churches kind of default is like hey don't even worry about the old testament Let's just talk about the New Testament. Um, there's a lot of problems with that, obviously, that mindset. So the Old Testament is very important for a lot of reasons. Um, but if people did pick the Old Testament, they, they really hang their hat on the Psalms. They're easier to digest. They feel applicable. They're fun to read. 
Um, sometimes the more direct messianic prophecies that are prominent in the New Testament can you know, feel less foreign, and the list goes on. So those are some examples of maybe like easier go-to ones. But in general, though, why do you think the Old Testament is harder for Christians to read and fully engage with? Um, yeah. Yeah, so I think that this, can, this answer can be, or this, this question can be answered in one word in the plural, and then we can nuance it. And that's distances. So mm -hmm. distance, right? We have, we, we as Christian people believe that Jesus, Jesus, the Messiah, is the ultimate culmination of the work of God. That is, Jesus in the, in, is, the, is the perfect reflection we read in Hebrews of God Almighty. We believe that he's creator God, right? We believe, and we also recognize, and that, that is more outlined for us or more clearly outlined for us on the pages of the New Testament. Mm -hmm. Also, we do believe that there are other doctrines that are more very distinctly Christian doctrines that are outlined for us on the pages of the New Testament. The doctrine of salvation, for example, more clearly outlined. How about this? The doctrine of, of what happens in eternity, more clearly mm -hmm. outlined on the pages of the New Testament. These are all fundamental Christian doctrines that are very clearly outlined on the pages of the New Testament. So we go to a Christian church, we hear some of these things spoken about, and we, we have a sense of affinity immediately, sort of with the, with the language that's being spoken about in the pages of the New Testament. It's it, in, terms of, in terms of distance, that is with sort of theological concepts, we're much closer to that, right? It's much closer to us in, even in time. There are, these, there are these distances that are close, or they're easier to, to, to you know, breach the, uh, bridge the gap between distances that we do have with the, with the New Testament. Um, with the Old Testament, we're not talking uh, per se about the, like for example, we don't have very clearly outlined doctrines of salvation. We don't have very clearly outlined doctrines of many Christ things that we talk about in our Christian churches. Instead, we have things like lever at marriage. Like, lever mm -hmm. at marriage? Like, are you serious? That's weird to us, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, Right. Think about some of the other things that are sort of weird to us in the Old Testament. Some of the, the laws that we, 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 that we encounter, yeah. uh, we see God portrayed in sort of weird ways. We're on the pages of the New Testament. We see God is, God is love, right? And God is ultimately manifested the person in the work of Jesus. On the pages of the Old Testament, sometimes he's depicted as sort of an angry God, mm -hmm. uh, you know, with, with his audible voice from the heavens. I mean, there are these distances, theological distances. There's distances in language. There's distances in cultures. There are differences that we just, we have a difficult time bridging. And so for Christian people that believe that God fulfilled his work through the person and the work of Jesus the Messiah, many times it's simpler, it's easier. It's, we feel like it's better to view the culmination and everything else uh, sort of as, as, a, as a sort of an add-on to the culmination. Uh, but, you know, the major problem with that, as I get about early in the book, is that does not do justice to what many Christians actually believe about the scriptures. Oh, yeah. That they are all equally the very yeah. word of God. Yeah. Maybe our, our, our uh, theoretical doctrine is everything's inspired. We look at Second Timothy. We look at First Timothy. We look at Paul's pastoral epistles, all that stuff how Jesus engaged with the Old Testament, but then practically, 
I think the last study I saw was like, if you go to your average church, if something like 5% of them are preaching from the Old Testament that given day, and then obviously 95% are from the New Testament. So it's, is, is our doctrine really that filled out if, if that's what we believe? And 95% of those, if they're Presbyterian churches, are from are preaching from Romans or Galatians. That's, that's right. <laughs> yeah, all of Paul's epistles. Yeah, the, the Gospels kind of get left out, and Romans 9 becomes really, uh, really, uh, really like uh, working for us pretty hard. <clears throat> I got kind of like a, a, a natural question that came up based on what you're saying, and then I remember you were talking about uh, your journey. And you spent some time in Israel, too. So, And we're obviously talking about the Old Testament. So I'm just curiosity, when you were, you know, had your time in Israel, you made a lot of friends, uh, obviously, that are, that are, you know, Jewish friends. Did you, when you were talking to them and possibly evangelizing to them, did you or how did you kind of bring up the Old Testament that we both share with our Jewish friends to kind of, kind of guide them into, you know, our Christian outlook on the New Testament. Right. So when you, when you, when you live in a place, what, so sometimes we think about places in the Middle East or places, you know, and I'm not sure what your experience has been, gentlemen, in terms of your travel, but we think of these far places as places that we would go maybe once or twice in a lifetime, mm-hmm. we're kind of disconnected from the people that would live there. Even many Christians that go to Israel never actually engage with any Israelis, right? So it's sort of in the abstract, we would think, maybe if we were if we were there, it would be something like, you know, church-oriented or Christian-oriented or a yeah. tour or something like that. But when you're living in a place, just like you gentlemen live, you know, in this, in this greater uh, so, uh, Southern California area, uh, the things that go on in, di- in conversations really revert to, I mean, we have basic conversations with people. So here's what I'm getting at with that. Yeah. And that is, I made genuine friends with my Israeli friends. They became my real friends. Yeah. And they became my real friends. And we talked about all the mundane things that you would talk about with real friends. But they knew that I was a Christian person. This is not something that you should or really in, in many, I would say, especially in Israel, you, you cannot hide this. You have to let people know who you are because you, you can't let people think that you're trying to pull one, you know, pull the wool over their eyes. You have to let them know distinctly who you are. And if they're interested in learning more about who you are and what you believe, then that will lead to very natural conversations, uh, especially as it relates to the Old Testament Hebrew Bible. If you, if you sort of hide that about yourself, it's, you're going to have a difficult time making friends anywhere. So my, I guess we could say, st- strategy is to be a real person, like go and make friends and if people are interested in talking about mm-hmm. the Old Testament Hebrew Bible, specifically how a Christian reading of that, I'd be happy to talk about that. Let's talk about it right now. Let's have a coffee. Uh, if they're not interested, you know, we can still be friends. Let's be friends. Yeah, yeah. They're not potential more. projects. They're they're people that you want to be friends with. And and there's st- and lots of these people, lots of the people that I make, I'm thinking of right now, are still very good, even family friends, people that we yeah. would say that we have a deep, deep, deep affection for that would not necessarily accept my readings of of the old testament but would be happy to talk to me about it or talk with me about it cool okay cool yeah i was just curious question um so in the book you give four examples in the beginning of this book for a better and deeper engagement of the old testament what are they and can you give a brief explanation of each and their importance to our reading could you uh define what you mean by brief 
<laughs> yeah. Oh, professor, yeah. you should, all right, whatever. It's subjective. Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, so a couple of things. I started off writing this book. This book was supposed to be something like um, uh, a basic guide to the, New, to the Old Testament. And I started writing it. And I was like, I kind of don't want to write that book. And here's why. Because many of my students have like a decent amount of info about the Old Testament, specifically if they're, if they're Christians and they come True. from a Christian, like they know the basics, right? They know there's an Israel, they know there was a Judah, they might not know yeah. the details, but they know names of the books and stuff. And, and, but, but lots of the basic info that you can get uh, from, uh, you know, about ancient Israel, you can get in a good study Bible, right? So you can read the study Bible notes, or you can read, you mentioned Logos, Logos has good notes you can read. Yep. Uh, all right, so when I started, as I started writing the book, I realized that my students, what they, what they needed most help with and what I need most help with, and I would say generally speaking, what we need most help with is how to engage texts well, how to be good readers of mm -hmm. text, not just getting more information, but what to do with that information and, and, how, to, and how, to, how to engage a text so that we're, we're perceiving the information that the authors may have wanted to communicate. All right, that wasn't brief. But I hope that that's helpful because <laughs> that's pretty thick and brief for what we're used to. Don't that's a, you'd be surprised about the brief answers we get that are 15 minutes long. <laughs> okay, so that was one minute out of my 15 minute answer. Now here comes the next 14 minutes, <laughs> yeah. and the next 14 minutes starts with this. As I as I read, I started thinking about okay, like how can I encourage myself? Right, this is how it's just being honest. What can I do to be a better reader? We read this Bible over and over and over again because we believe that we can actually become better readers of the text. We believe that we, all of us, can continue to be better readers. And the mm -hmm. first thing that I said is that we have to read humbly. Why? Because, well, first of all, in the biblical text, it's just a superficial reading of the book of Proverbs, let's say, for example, people that aren't teachable are the sort of the, the, the example of being idiots, right? <laughs> Like, if you're not teachable, <laughs> yeah. if you think you know everything, you're actually the idiot in the Bible, especially uh -huh. in the book of Proverbs. Now, maybe they don't use the word idiot, but they say the Proverbs say something like that. Yeah. So humbly, yeah. we have to read humbly. Like, we have to be ready for what we read to actually change what we believe, right? The second thing, and we have to just be teachable. The second thing is we have to read successively. You know, you might think like, oh, successive meanings that you, you start with Genesis or you start with John, you go all the way through. The, that's not what I'm saying. What successive reading is it doesn't necessarily mean that you start at the beginning of the Bible or even at the beginning of a book, but it means that you have to consider that you're, where you're reading in terms of, of, of a succession of, in, of revelation being revealed, right? So we have to recognize that uh, we're discovering information about God and about God's plans little by little in the text. We're not, we don't get everything at one time, and that helps us recognize not only what's being portrayed or interpret what's being portrayed in a specific text, but also helps us recognize that, you know, we are permitted to receive, we're, we're best interpreters when we recognize that we're interpreting in a specific period along this sort of, you know, this, this history of salvation. Yeah. Uh, not every passage is the, the culmination of what the Bible says about about a, a specific topic. Yeah. Mm -hmm. so we have to recognize that. Also, we have to read entirely, which means we should read things in their entire biblical context. We, we have a difficult, yep. yeah. we have a difficult time with this um, very naturally 
And so we just need to be encouraged to do this. Why do we have a difficult time? Practically, it's difficult to read entire books of the Bible. Practically, it's difficult to read the entire Bible in a reasonable amount of time so that you remember the details of what you started reading a couple months ago, right? It's just difficult. But we also have to recognize that the, the Bible... particularly the Old Testament, makes references even across books. It's intended to be read in its context, in the context of the Old Testament Hebrew Bible. So we have to read the entire thing, and we can't be dogmatic just about a particular section, but rather have to recognize, well, that is, we have to read everything within its entire context. All right, and then the last point, and this is actually what the book focuses on, right? Mm -hmm. Reading deliberately. So what is reading deliberately? We have to be intentional as readers of slowing down the process of reading. You notice how I slowed down on that? <laughs> yeah. And the reason why I slowed down on that, it was an object lesson or something like that. People hate doing things slowly. Mm-hmm. They're even getting annoyed listening now. Because <laughs> I was just speaking really fast. You know, I live in the northeast of the U.S., so I speak fast. Yeah. But, but and here by the accent. But, but people don't, especially Christians, if they think they can get more info, if they do something faster and read it, like a, or, you know, a larger quantity of thing, like if they can get it. Okay, so I'm into reading the entirety of the Bible. I just said it. I'm also into reading or slowing down so that we can pay special attention to what the biblical writers were trying to communicate in order to provoke a response from their authorship. I'm, fr- I'm sorry, from their readership. We have to slow down in order to to pay attention to the genius of the biblical writers. What were they doing in the text? Not just what were they communicating, right, in in terms of information, but what were they doing in the text in order to provoke a response from the readership? And by reading deliberately, we're able to to get close to that, to figure those types of details out. Yeah, because reading reading slowly probably matches up more closely with how— they orally heard it as well because people spoke it probably in a way like this so people could hear it and understand it clearly versus just rattling it off real fast. Rewind and go fast forward. Yeah. You just just listen. Yeah. Honestly, I think different sections of the Old Testament were communicated in in different ways. So there was probably much, there was some of it that was sung, there was some. But what we have, see, one of the goals of this book is to get contemporary readers to engage with texts well, because we actually believe, so sort of, we would say something like this in many of our churches, we believe that the written text of the Bible is that which is inspired, right? We would say something like that. So what is it that we, that we, that we, that we have to study in order to, to, to glean right the like contemporary messages that are inspired, and that's the, the words of the text. It's the words that we believe are inspired. It's the words that we believe have the power and the authority, right? It's the words that contain the message uh, that we are to apply to our lives. It's the very words. So for, for me, I'm trying to do my best in this book to help readers of the Bible work with the words the best way possible. Hmm. Yeah, and and maybe to to bridge into my next question to kind of give it some context. 
because um, you start off each chapter, A, with like a little bit of a quote, maybe a, a few sentences, and then you dive into it. It's not just a quote, and then like, let's move on to something else. It's actually engage with that and show how is the reading of this, or how is the author using this, um, likened to whatever biblical narrative or genre I'm in, uh, whatsoever. So maybe, how, like, what are you doing with kind of classical literature, you can call it, or kind of classics of English literature, that you're trying to teach readers to do with the Bible? All right, so let me ask you this question. It's not a quiz, Peter. Let me ask you this question, though. You ever read The Hobbit? I have. The Hobbit is a most excellent book, isn't it? It is a very good book. Yep. And it's even better, like, when you read it aloud and you give, you know, everybody... It was, it was read aloud to me as a kid, yep. This is what I did to my children, with, yep. with my children, right? I read The Hobbit aloud. Like, amazing. All right, let me ask you this. You have to answer this. <laughs> okay. Who do you think is a more inspired, divinely inspired author? Tolkien, <laughs> nope, nope, Tolkien or Isaiah, the prophet? Uh-huh. Answer the question, please. Isaiah. Isaiah. Right answer, this is a Sunday school answer. You must, yeah. Have, yeah. You must have been in Awana, right? <laughs> yeah. but, but who's, all right, so let me ask you this. Who do you think we should read more closely, Tolkien or Daniel? Daniel. All right. Uh, good answer. Uh, rhetorical questions. But here's the point. Many times we think that reading the Old Testament should be done almost, or Bible reading in general, should be done in such a way that separates the Bible from other excellent literature. And in actuality, what I'm trying to do in this book is to say, we should read the Bible as if it were at least other excellent literature. Right, so we take books like uh, the Lord of the Flies, which I make reference yep. to, and uh, the Hobbit, which I make reference. Scarlet to. Letter, a few other ones. Yep. The Scarlet Letter that I make reference to, exactly. Several of these other books that I make reference to, and and what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to say these very talented authors did these types of things. They utilized these aesthetic devices. They utilized imagery. They utilized metaphor. They they set the reader up in this way. Why wouldn't the biblical writers do at least what they did, mm, yep. and even maybe in better ways? Mm -hmm. So there, there, it's it's a bit of ironic reading sometimes. What what, what we as contemporary uh, Christians fall into, we have such a reverence for the Bible that we say, no, 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 I can't read it as if it were just another book. And in yep. that, they're under reading. Mm. We are under reading because we have to read it as if it were at least any other book. But it's even more than that. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Now that makes sense. That. That helps kind of this this next one. So we'll, we'll kind of go through genre 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 is like the wrong way to say it, but like kind of te not textual difference. We'll, we'll we'll get we'll get there. I, I, the word's not coming to me. But um, what what tends to be so difficult? Because I'm thinking Bible reading plans, and people are far past this now, um, hopefully. But when we get to ceremonially heavy texts like tent texts and sacrificial texts and um, you do this with this, you build this here, this guy does this there. And, and a lot of Christians, like you said, the distance from this is like, we have nothing like this today. How, like, how, how, do, we, like, how do I read this well in, as, a, as a Christian, but also just reading these, reading these texts better? Yeah. So uh, for, there's a couple of things that, um, that I think need to be ironed out or at least stated with regard to how we read. So as Christian people... Uh, when we do come to the text, so a couple of things. I think it's chapter three of the book where I where I where I talk about how um, a, a basic reading of the Old Testament, particularly the Torah, 
depicts how God communicates through words. So if we read the Torah, we sort of take these, do these readings of how God is communicated. God communicates in the Garden of Eden through an audible voice. Ultimately, mm-hmm. we see God um, uh, communicating from, with an audible voice from the heavens. Then we see Moses going up to the heavens and God communicating with the, the anthropomorphic finger, uh, so a written word. And then finally the people, you know, around this time, the people of Israel are like, ah, don't ever let God speak to us again from the mountain. Yeah, right? yeah. Exodus 19 there, that's fine. Yep. Yeah. They say, okay, Moses, you go up, you, he yep. tells you, then we do exactly. So by, by doing that, what they're saying is, Moses, you will function essentially as the voice of God in our community. Yeah. And then some of that which is which Moses which Moses uh, hears from God Moses writes down so then we have Moses functioning as a functioning as a, a as a prophet in his community through the written word of God so basically you know in our reading of this uh, in our theological reading of this what we one of the things that we're left with is that God is a verbal God whose written word is equally authoritative hmm. as his audible voice as well as uh, as well as the message that came through the prophets. Now, some of this I've picked up from really some of the reform writers, especially John Frame, who mentioned who. Oh yeah, yep, totally. Yep. in this doctrine yep. of the Word of God book. But the point is that that's that seems to be that that's how we read these texts theologically, right? Yeah. Okay. Now, having said that, what we what we end up doing is we apply this theological paradigm to different sections of the Scripture, and we conclude that if if this is all God's written word, then it's all equally authoritative. It's all equally inspired, right? All of that's very important because that influences our reading of these texts that supposedly don't apply to us. Because in actuality, if the texts are equally authoritative, if they're equally inspired, there, there's something there that God wants to say to all of the audiences that have been privy to reading this yep. now those are some theological presuppositions that we, we just have to admit right we're not going into this going like oh maybe that section was not really inspired mm-hmm. Maybe mm-hmm. that's not how we're approaching this I and mean, it's just important for us to admit that as as we talk about your question your question now isn't i, I think the way i can answer it is not about do these texts apply or not but rather yep. What in the world are we doing as readers yep, yep. to facilitate the application of the theological it principles? It kind of feels bogging down, too detail-oriented, and it's like, this is just not the world we live in. Yeah, so so the issue ends up being not not now what we believe about the text, because we believe it's, it, it, it's inspired, it's authoritative, it's for us, but rather what are we doing as readers yeah. to facilitate a, our understanding of, of these principles and apply our understanding of these principles? And And here's one of the things. I think... First and foremost, as it relates to these difficult sections of the Torah especially, that we are not sufficiently reading them as part of ancient Israel's narrative. We get Mm. caught up frequently in the individual laws and what what is, right? And we don't recognize that we have a, a, a narrative in the Torah that's telling us a story. And part of that story is indeed the giving of these laws. So instead of being so sort of, you know, uh, such an, I guess we could say, right, an egocentric reader. Like, what mm-hmm. does this have to do with me? What does it have to do with me? Rather, mm-hmm. how can we perceive more about the character of God based mm-hmm. upon this revelation? 
how can we then be moved to action in our contemporary lives by reading about the character of God, the nature of God, in these narratives? Like, what if we read like that instead of thinking, oh, you know, the weird Leverite thing, that wouldn't go in our society. Circumcision, uh, you know, not that one. Uh, You know, instead of thinking that way, what if we understood this as a big story of which the giving of these weird parts is part of that story? Mm. Hmm. Yeah, that's good. So for maybe defining terms that we didn't even mention, but I'm just going to go out on a limb and see if what we're talking about is hermeneutics or somewhat closely associated. All right. A couple of things, but let's make these sound bites because I haven't been good at that so far. So here comes a couple <laughs> yeah. sound bites. Uh-huh. This... I think everything relates to hermeneutics, yeah. all of it. But my, the issue that I've had with typical hermeneutics classes is that they don't incorporate a sufficient amount of content. Yep. And what they tend to do is they tend to impose yep. contemporary ideas of genre on biblical texts. 100%. Here's the rules to follow. Follow these rules. Here's the be rules better to follow. Exactly. What we actually do is we engage with genre as well, and texts engage in genre. So like what genre is the book of Job? Like how many people have asked that over the past, you know, 2,500 <laughs> yeah. years? Yeah. What, what genre is this, right? So we can talk about Job, but we can't talk about Job well. We can talk about the contents of Job, but we can't talk about the contents of Job well, unless we talk about how to engage the prologue, which is a different, clearly yep. a different genre than Job's monologue, which yep. is even a little bit different than yeah. even the dialogues that Job ends up having with his friends. Then we have, an, we have another monologue later on. We have the speeches in the world. And then we have an epilogue that's very clearly narrative again. So what genre is Job? So we cannot talk about the contents of Job unless we talk about how Job was written and how we should engage in the writing. So Old Testament classes, in my opinion, by the way, I teach hermeneutics and Old Testament. Mm-hmm. Right? So this is, this is where this book came out. Mm-hmm. Of. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think hermeneutics classes traditionally focus a bit too much on dividing up the genres and providing rules. They're imposed yep. upon, in my, in my opinion, frequently. Yep. Yep. And then Old Testament classes focus very much on providing facts, dates, what happened here and yep. there. It's information you can get from a study Bible. But what we don't focus on lots, and this is where the book came from, and I'm getting excited. This is where the book came from, what is taking, like fundamentally addressing how we read these inspired texts and combining it with the information that we get from these texts to be able to interpret and apply these texts well. Hey all, this is Peter, one of the co-hosts of the Guilt, Grace, Gratitude podcast with a word from one of our sponsors, our title sponsor at Logos Bible Software. Have you gotten your free book of the month from Logos yet? Join tens of thousands of believers who build their library with a free new digital theological book each and every month. Then read it on the free Logos Bible study app. Logos is the easiest to use, most powerful Bible study tool on the planet. You heard that right, on the planet. It works on mobile, the web, and even has an amazing app for your laptop. I myself use the mobile app every night to read from the Hebrew, the Greek, and a few other resources. I love it. I've used other apps, and this is the best one on the market. It really truly is. And if you want to go even deeper, you can choose from a vast selection of the top books for in-depth Bible study. 
There's also step-by-step videos to help you learn how to study the Bible like a pro. So get your free book of the month today. Go to logos.com slash guiltgrace and get started with Logos today. We have this link in our show notes. So just open up our podcast, find our show notes, click this link, and you can get started with us with Logos Bible Software. As you probably know, we talk a lot about Westminster Seminary, California on here. I can't even begin to tell you the impact this institution has had on my faith, my family, and the ministry the Lord has entrusted me with. If you feel called to serve the church and want the most rigorous training for gospel ministry around, consider coming to Westminster Seminary, California, a confessionally reformed institution in sunny San Diego that offers master's degrees in biblical and theological studies, historical theology, and divinity. Westminster's approach to ministry education emphasizes a mastery of the original biblical languages, maintaining a small student-to-professor ratio, a laser focus on face-to-face education coupled with an understanding of the importance of having pastor-scholars with decades of ministry experience train the next generation of servant leaders for the Church of Jesus Christ. If this interests you, and I hope it does, Call Westminster today at 888-480-8474 to talk to an admissions counselor or visit www.wscal.edu. Again, call Westminster Seminary California today at 888-480-8474 or log on to www.wscal.edu, which will all be available in our show notes. Westminster Seminary, California, for Christ, his gospel, and his church. Are you a student who's looking to go deeper into classical Protestantism and our theological heritage? What about a pastor who wants some sharpening of his theological, exegetical, and historical toolboxes? Are you a layperson who's looking for theological wisdom? Maybe you're an educator looking to lay a classical foundation in theology. The Davenant Institute seeks to retrieve the riches of classical Protestantism to renew and build up the contemporary church. And key to this mission is their educational arm, Davenant Hall. In an age where much theological education both overlooks the riches of church history and keeps students in debt, Davenant Hall is reimagining theological education. They take full advantage of digital technology to make high-quality theological education affordable via online classes. Davenant's offers an M-Lit in classical Protestantism with the standard and pastoral ministry tracks and a brand-new PhD program in partnership with Union Theological College and Davenant Hall supervisors. Yet they insist that in-person fellowship is key to Christian formation, So to that end, they host regular residentials at the Davenant House Study Center in the beautiful Blue Ridge Mountain region of South Carolina. Registration for spring 2023 classes running April to June are now open, but registration closes March 29th. Fees start at just $225 for a 10-week class with a two-hour Zoom class from expert professors each week. Classes include the Reformation in the Modern World, a Biblical Theology of the Sexes, Augustine's City of God, 
and so many more. These classes look incredible. Visit www.davenanthall.com to find out more or www.davenantinstitute.org for more information about the whole organization or go to our show notes and click on the link. Wonderful. Okay, cool. Um, So this is kind of based on maybe a perception of Old Testament being somewhat esoteric esoteric and you know not uh having people have a hard time digest it so old testament history might be really fun to read um we've all even since sunday school remember you know stories of noah's ark and moses and all that stuff yeah david and goliath and uh, there's a lot of good fun stories i guess that uh people people know of but more often than not, we wonder how does this add in any way to the redemptive storyline? And I know that this could be more of a covenantal kind of structure and, and knowing how, like you said, how it, uh, the successive, the point number two successive, which is revealing revelation and how it's moving forward. Um, how do we how do we as Christians read this how, when it seems so foreign to the New Testament? Yeah, so that that's right. There are some sections of the Old Testament Hebrew Bible that we can directly we can draw a direct line, like a very short direct line, with the the culmination in the person and the work of Jesus the Messiah. Mm-hmm. There are some sections where where we can simply just just do that right and then there are other sections song of solomon (laughs) ecclesiastes yeah there are other sections where or some of the non-messianic psalms you mentioned psalms earlier there's certain sections of the bible where either we have to um default to some sort of hermeneutic that permits us to maybe look at um let's say trying to stray away from any uh, any words that might be taken the wrong way but maybe a hermeneutic that is not that 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 understands the text in intentionally in a more christological way right yeah Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, or 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 we have a little bit of a problem all right so if we're for reading christologic christotelically i guess we could say and we come to these sections that do not have prophecy in them, or they're not, for example, depicting a direct lineage of, of yeah. Jesus, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah. Uh, lots of texts do mention these types of things, and lots of texts can be considered prophetic for understanding prophetic in a certain type of way. But lots of texts also aren't like that. So what do we do? Well, a couple of things. I actually think it's under, how can I say this? The following thing I think is underappreciated by Christian readers of the Old Testament. What I think we do is we we have we do recognize that Christ is the ultimate, like the culmination of the revelation of God, mm-hmm. and so we want to read everything pointing in a very direct way to Christ. Okay, so sometimes that causes us to compromise even our own established hermeneutics, right? Yep. But what if, what if 
we read these Old Testament texts and on their like let them stand where they're at to to help us yep. grasp more the character of God. Yep. Isn't that ultimately like isn't it a really good thing to read biblical texts and permit them to tell us more about God's character? How about if we how about if we read these biblical texts and we recognize through through a close reading of them how God relates to God's creation? Mm -hmm. That's also another so it isn't the only you know sometimes we read these texts and we think the only valid way to read these is if they eventually tell us what Jesus did on the cross. And in many there are many texts that do that in a direct line, but some texts do this. There's a perforated line, they go in circles and the like. Yeah. Because what they're doing is they're revealing to us the character of God. They're revealing to us how God interacts with God's creation. They're, they're telling us about a characteristic about God. They're, they're showing us how God works behind the scenes in salvation history. There, there, are, there are texts that just speak to how good our God is. That's a sufficient reading, I think. Mm -hmm. Instead of trying everything, even in many ways, artificially, Mm -hmm. trying to make things artificially seem as if they're in this very neat order of salvation history. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and that, I think that's also, that's a, it's a good, good way of, I think, bridging to this as well, because we, we talked about this beginning, because I think Psalms, maybe, I think we tend to think we're better readers of the Psalms than we actually are. Um, but my, my question is, can we go a little bit deeper um, in, our, in our Psalms reading than I think most people are used to. And instead of like, yeah, this is, it's good stuff. It helps us in, in times of need and lament and, and praising and all, all this great stuff. But what are some elements of biblical poetry um, that those reading in English, and if you can read in Hebrew, um, that you, could, you can utilize to, to maybe get deeper, like you said, into the text, what the text is saying? And, and how does this maybe apply to, to wisdom literature also in general? Right. So... There's a couple of things. I, you know, I forget who said this, but someone said, you might be able to tell me who said it, poetry is that which can't be translated. Are you familiar with that quote? I, I do know the quote. I can't think yeah. of who, yeah, who said it, yeah. And, and I, you know, I, but anyway, I, I agree with that. So to a certain extent, right? In biblical Hebrew poetry, um, in our English Bibles, and by the way, this is not an elitist exercise. No, I'm not saying no. such things to be an elitist. What I am going to do right now is point out a couple of things that challenge us in our interpretation because of distances. Yeah. So in our in our English translations or Spanish or whatever the mother language is that you that, that the listeners read, if it's not the biblical Hebrew, and by the way, there are no there are no contemporary native biblical Hebrew speakers, right? And there's <laughs> yeah. different types so of all of us have some sort of distance, whether or not you could read all Hebrew. Us, exactly. All of us have some sort of distance. But the point is, we come to biblical Hebrew and we're like, oh, I get the gist. This is, this is, this is awesome. I, I, you know, this moves me. Why? Because semantics, meanings of words and phrases in biblical Hebrew can be adequately translated to different languages, right? We know yeah. for the most part with lots of words and phrases meant in biblical Hebrew, we're able to provide the gist and different translations as to what it meant, that can be translated. But a couple of things can't be translated. Mm -hmm. they just, they're just lost in translation. So, and there are, there are two main things I'll focus on here. First, we, we can see in our broken up uh, 
the, in the in sort of the copy edited broken up lines in biblical Hebrew mm -hmm. that uh, in our in our English language translations that authors I'm sorry the that uh, the modern translations tend to try to separate these lines into thought segments or whatever. Yep. Well, it's very obvious in, in biblical Hebrew poetry that one of the main components, one of the main ways to identify poetry is the proliferation of parallelism. Yeah. So there are two or three or maybe more lines sometimes, adjacent lines that relate to each other in some sort of way. Now we can normally understand the semantic meaning of these lines. So we can mm -hmm. normally be like, oh, I see how they relate. But they relate in other ways. Like sometimes in biblical Hebrew, they relate phonetically, like how they sound. Mm -hmm. right? Sometimes there is something like rhyming. Other times there's alliteration. There's plenty of other uh, phonetic ways. Morphology, they relate in how they change words. They there's different types of way that, yeah. that lines. It's not relate. even what they're saying, but it's how they're saying it is, not, is it's, also a beautiful it's inseparable, way. in my opinion. It yeah. really is inseparable from from deriving meaning and principles, even though the language can be translated. Yeah, mm -hmm. totally. So that's one side, the parallelism. Another another way in which uh, we can recognize biblical Hebrew poetry in the Psalms, but also this is prevalent in the Proverbs, a poetic time, type of literature, is the proliferation of metaphor. Now again, mm -hmm. metaphor, the, the semantics of many metaphors can be translated. You can get this sort of the meaning in English, like what are the words meaning? But sometimes we are lacking as contemporary readers the source domain information for the metaphor. So we like kind of don't exactly know what the what you know a metaphor is 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 representing one concept in terms of another. So sometimes we struggle with the principal concept, like mm -hmm. what exactly is this to. being compared to? Yeah, what is yeah. it being? What is it? What is it referring to? So some of them are intuitive for us. Um, but some of them are we've just sort of lost information as it yeah. relates to like the song of solomon is one of those metaphors is like i have no idea what he's talking about right well, now in the song of solomon there is lots of metaphors that we're yeah. kind of like what does this one mean but we also see several in the in the proverbs yeah, yeah. we're kind of like mm, okay why is the author comparing it to that and and other and i would say a good amount also in the book of job mm -hmm. hmm. that's right maybe just, just so we can kind of get into, because I know Job is kind of like your, uh, your, uh, it's your right hook. That's the thing you you've done most of your scholarly work on. Maybe just um, some some help on, obviously not everything on Job, but some like some some grappling things that people can can help them a little bit more reading through Job. Because a lot of people are like, oh, it's just about divine sovereignty. It's just about suffering, or it's just about like how do we how do we put these two together? Maybe yeah. help us a little bit on some wisdom literature with Job. Well, anytime, anytime anyone says to you, Job is just about ignore the rest of what they're going to say. <laughs> yeah. gonna say. Yeah. It's not just about. Like now, a series on divine suffering or, or on human suffering through the book of Job. Yeah. I mean, look, I, I, I was being, I was joking. Obviously, we can say Job is about, but normally yeah. about in the biblical books, as you all know, in the biblical books, we can say sort of a main, a, a main theme is and we can, we can teach to that. We can even preach to that. But when we analyze these things, we recognize that there are many books that have several threads running through them. In fact, I would say to a certain extent, we could say all books have several threads running through them. So in Job, we don't we don't just see, you know, one thread. Um, and it's difficult to say that the whole book is about human suffering, yeah. mostly because 
Job never gets an answer to why he's actually exactly. suffering. Yeah. So if we're supposed to read this to understand something about human suffering, we're going to get the same answer that Job got. Yeah. Which and is, it's all restored at the end. So it's like he suffered, obviously, but like he got it all back and more so at the end. Right. Which brings into question the issue of just retribution. Yeah. Because if Job just gets everything back at the end because he's good, then good people get good stuff and bad people get bad stuff eventually. Yeah. That's just how it works. And that, that's, also, that's one of the things that you know, is called into question in, in Job chapters 1 and 2. But, yeah. but I'll just say in terms of Job, there's a couple of things. First of all, um, as readers, we have to recognize. We are recognize. As readers, <laughs> we have to recognize that... There, uh, there. We are given privileged information in chapters one and two. Stuff Job doesn't know. Stuff Job and his friends don't know. Right. Yep. What does that mean? That means that we are privileged to look into the rest of the composition to the epilogue, and make judgments based upon what we know in the prologue. Yeah, that's a big deal, and yeah. that is. Why is that a big deal? Well, I'm going to tell you briefly, as as quickly as as I possibly can. Uh, cut out whatever you want, I guess. But I'm going to just tell you briefly, okay? Yeah. Why is that a big deal? Here's why this is a big deal. It's a big deal because the way that Job is written can facilitate contemporary readers, especially, understanding some of the proverbial sounding adages, phrases, and think that they are, Job especially, and his friends even especially, especially, saying good things. Mm -hmm. In actuality, the, especially, the, well, the friend speech is condemned at the end. Yep. All right. So, yeah, we're right, right. So, so, so what's happening here? Well, the privileged information is sort of like we are, we are told what's going on to a certain extent so that we're able to learn from the embedded mistakes of the interlocutors during the composition or during the, during the, 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 the book. So we see these people going back and forth for three rounds-ish, yep. and we hear them talking about just retribution and several other themes, mm -hmm. and, and they're sounding in many ways very biblical, like mm -hmm. other sections of the Bible, like Proverbs. Mm -hmm. We're able to say, that doesn't apply in this situation. That's misunderstood in this mm -hmm. situation. Th that's not actually the right type of proverb, right? Like, we're able to do that as readers. Yeah. That, I think, actually is one of the main points of reading the book. Hmm. Ah. Not just <clears throat> right? being able to discern when wisdom adages, particularly biblical wisdom adages, are used in the proper context and therefore uh, applicable. Yeah, which is helpful in the way that, yeah, you give those four, um, like four kind of principles at the beginning of your book, obviously, and then it helps us engage with Job. So we know Job 1 and 2 is is stuff that the friends and Job don't know that we, like we can, it helps our interpretive process versus just saying like, I'm going to read this one through 42 and, and I'm going to um, learn a little bit about divine suffering and learn a little, or uh, human suffering and divine sovereignty and stuff versus like, okay, how's, how's this book tell me it wants me to read the book and in uh, a, a better and more faithful way um, to what the author wanted us to get. Yeah. And since I, my uh, last at bat, I made contact on that hermeneutics thing, got a base hit. I'm going to try, I'm going to go up to like bat again and say the, like, uh, for the Job context, the Job context with the uh, friends, would you say that Job's friends had a really poor icy Jesus? I, I don't put things in those terms here. Here's what okay. I would say about Job's friends. Um, by the way, 
you, 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 this, this could still be a base hit for you if, you know, if it works out. I'll so run it out. I'll run it out. I'm fast. But, but, <laughs> but uh, I, I don't tend to put things in those terms. Here's what I would say. Okay. I would say that Job's friends seem to base their system of consistent just retribution yeah. on traditional wisdom that we even see other area, in other areas of the Bible. Yeah. So it's very clear in other areas of the Bible that God does teach that there is just retribution. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Lex Talionis principle in Deuteronomy. We see we see this type of thing, like just retribution, and most explicitly stated in in these individual adages that we see through the book of Proverbs. But what we also see, especially in Proverbs, and especially by the juxtaposition of these Proverbs that that look like they contradict each other, is oh, yeah. that is that wisdom is is not just the memorization of the adages, but it's also wisdom in incorporates when to, a knowledge as to when to apply these adages mm -hmm. and so we have for example in proverbs 26 4 and 5 answer full according to his folly don't answer full according to his folly like what is these are do you think the editor of the book of proverbs didn't know that he was were saying the exact same thing yeah, yeah. they are saying the exact same thing mm -hmm. but in one situation one applies and the other it doesn't well what job's friends do and they do this especially by way of utilizing light darkness imagery, in my opinion. Mm. They say things like, you know, Job says, I want darkness because I want to rest. Mm -hmm. And Job's mm -hmm. friends eventually say, like, that's not what darkness is set out for. Darkness is a is a punishment for wicked people. It means death, basically. Job's like, no, it means rest. And then Bildad comes in 18 and he's like, the lamp of the wicked wanes. And we're like, wait, I've seen that before. <laughs> yeah. And we look in the yeah. book of Proverbs and it shows up three times. The lamp of the wicked will wane, and it, it, literally three times in the book of Proverbs. So, like, mm. is Proverbs wrong? Because, mm. right? Of course not. Yeah, they're reading the Bible, but is it? Are they applying it well? What we know because of Job one and two, that the lamp of the wicked waning is not applicable in Job's situation because Job's yep. not wicked. So why exactly. is God saying that to him? Yeah. So Job then comes back in chapter one and he says, yeah, how frequently do you see the lamp of the wicked waning? Basically saying, hey, look, that doesn't happen consistently. And the implication, I think, is that if the lamp of the wicked doesn't always consistently wane, then this also this idea that there's a consistent system of just retribution, yeah. consistent universal system of just retribution also doesn't exist on this earth. That's, I think, what Job is getting at there. So again, like we there's lots of conversations going on yeah. in the book of Job. We have to let those conversations co uh, we have to let them coexist with one another and receive as readers what the text is is telling us in many different many different points. So yeah. discernment is key. Well, what we see from the book of Job is that Job's friends, sounding light, lots like traditional wisdom, misapplied that tra traditional right. wisdom in Job's situation. And we know this, only we know this as readers. So yep. we could see that the book was written for readership, right? It was, mm -hmm. it was intended for us to be able to look at this situation and go, oh, no, 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 don't say that. That's not, ooh, ooh. sounds like a proverb, but it isn't, yeah. right? So this is why, and, and again, I'm not a hater, nor am I an elitist. But I highly recommend, like, doing for for people that read uh, passages before a service to get people excited about the service. Yep. Like, stay away from Job's friends because they might sound like the Proverbs. Right. Yeah. Right. But God condemns their speech, and it's that speech specifically when they're interacting with Job that's eventually condemned. 
because they utilize what sounds like traditional adages, traditional wisdom, the Word of God. It sounds very much like the Word of God to create a system of, of fixed just retribution. And God says, that's not good. Don't use my word and my name to do that. <laughs> yeah. 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 Because yeah. it doesn't apply in Job's situation. Yeah, and this exactly. might be a little extreme to say, but every heretic has their own, their favorite verse. So it's people. Yeah, just... mine is just, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, but and maybe the, I think this, this helps. So my, my last question, and especially as we look towards speech, um, and, and I think, again, when we look at the prophets, like they're, they're speakers, they talk, we, we think they only ever talk about the future. They only, like, they're only just prophesiers about the future. Um, but is that all they look at? Is that, is that all that they're, they're functioning as? And, and maybe how do they also uniquely, like you talk about, they, they weave poetry and prose together, Southern Kingdom, mm. Northern Kingdom. So they do a lot of things that if we try to just put them in the future box, we don't catch what they say all the way. Yeah, right. So uh, first of all, the, 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 you know, we have a little bit of different understanding um, in, in, in the Christian scriptures and the Christian viewing of the Old Testament as to what a prophet is. Many times we think prophet, boom, we think prophecy, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, and by the way, this is not to say that there isn't prophecy. I totally, yeah. It's, yeah, right? it's not, yeah, yeah, we're not saying they don't do it. Just they, it's not the only thing they do. They right. also judge. And, and, and Nick, you mentioned the word esoteric you know, earlier as it related to parts of the Torah. I would say many people view the prophets just as like eso- these esoteric, there's sort of this, lots of them are these mystical be- and they see weird things, they see <laughs> monsters, it seems like flying yeah. saucers, some might say, you know, yeah. uh, this type of stuff, right? And we're kind of like, whoa, you know? But I think one of the reasons why we, 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 we struggle sometimes to read the prophets is because we do think that they are, um, we, we sort of push their messages into the future and we don't privilege or we don't we don't appreciate them as most excellent poets in many cases. Oh, yeah. Let me just pause there and say another another thing that's important to recognize is that uh, prophetic literature isn't exclusively poetic. It is. I'm sorry. Prophetic literature isn't exclusively poetic. I'm not sure if I said that mm-hmm. in many cases we read of the actions of a prophet, even the prophet dialoguing with people. And, and to a certain extent, we, we, we also consider those sections prophetic literature. So we can't think, okay, prophetic literature means that the prophet is telling the future because we actually don't really mean that about all the texts that we would consider to be prophetic texts. There's yeah. sections of Isaiah, for example, that are that are narrative, very clearly narrative, right? Yeah. So that's that's the the you know the distinction but prophetic literature is not exclusively narrative exclusively poetic when we encounter either the narrative we read those narratives with the principles that we that we that with which we we read we engage in narr- narrative and when we encounter poetic literature we engage that poetic literature with the principles that we would normally utilize the hermeneutical principles that we normally utilize to engage poetic literature. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm thinking of Nathan the prophet. Some sometimes and a lot of times the prophet is just telling someone that they're screwing up right now. Yeah. 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 They're not just saying like you're gonna screw up in the future. They're like, yeah, you screwed up right now. <laughs> no, it's yeah. actually happening right now. You're screwing yeah. up. Oh <laughs> well, yeah, and uh, Elijah is his ministry is very yep. much like that, right? Um and, and I, I, re- I remind us as as Christian people that um 
you know, our Jewish friends actually believe that some of, like they call those books prophetic books, right? Yeah. yeah. The formal prophets. So for us as Christian people, we tend to think that the mostly poetic prophets, so there's a couple that aren't completely poetic, like Jonah, for example, but we tend to think that the, the, what, what many would call the minor prophets are really the prophetic books, hmm. whereas the, the, you know, the, the, the prophets that um, many of our I Jewish did, Jeremiah, prophets, Ezekiel, like we think, yeah. Well, those even days. before that, so, so even before that, like for Second Samuel, okay, right, yeah, 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 yeah. We, we tend to think, ah, but in actuality, we do read repeatedly in these books, for example, in the case of Elijah and Elisha, yeah. Human beings receiving the word of God, delivering that word of God. In that sense, we can say that these texts are most certainly poetic. I'm sorry, prophetic, uh, though they're not poetic. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. Very cool. And to, to wrap it up, let's talk about Isaiah 52 to 53. Huge chapters in the Old Testament. Um, and you, you were talking about it in the last chapter of your book, uh, the case study on the servant song. Um, what are you aiming for in this chapter, and how can we read this consecutively, uh, which is one of your four principles and within its own context, as well as grappling it with how the new Testament authors read it. Cause yeah. Isaiah 53 Here, is huge. Are, Christians yeah. are licking their jobs. Yeah. Like this is, this is our bread and butter. Yeah. Isaiah 53 bread and butter as Christians. Look, I'm not, I'm not denying that this is our bread and butter as Christians. Uh, but what I am, here's what I'm trying to do yeah. here. I think I admit this in the chapter. Uh-huh. We cannot separate ourselves as Christians from our Christianity. Mm -hmm. Let's not pretend uh, that we can. What we can do is we can be humble readers. Mm -hmm. We can intentionally create spaces for us to be teachable. So, and sometimes when we do this, we, um, we have to be open to, to changing our readings or interpretations of certain passages. I, I wrote this uh, a, a very short chapter in um, in a book called Hebrew for Life, mm -hmm. academic, and and in that I, I call it the double-edged sword of biblical languages. And part of the point of this is that if we study biblical Hebrew, if we study biblical languages in general, sometimes when we you know we love it, we we get into the nitty-gritty of mm -hmm. text, and it, you know, and that's a good thing. That's a that's a that's one side of the awesome sword, right? We're able to divide the text well, to use that metaphor. But the other side is that sometimes it pierces closely held interpretations that we have of passages. That is, oh, yeah. when we're able to, to read the text in its language, sometimes we have to be able to sort of cut out a bad interpretation and start anew. Mm -hmm. And so what I'm doing here is I'm saying, okay, look, we've talked this whole book about how to be deliberate readers. I'm not trying to pretend I don't know what New Testament writers are doing with this text mm -hmm. what i would like to do however is to say how do are we can we be good readers of the text in its context yeah. and and still come to the same conclusions that the new testament writers yeah. came to not only that but yeah. here's this is this is the, this is another key for us as new testament readers sometimes as new testament readers we're like oh look it he was the the author saying that's a prediction but in actuality, many times, what the author is doing is looking at a, at a pattern and not necessarily a futuristic prophecy. Yep, totally. That, that happens in the New Testament, right? Where we see these patterns being made bigger and then ultimately fulfilled. So what I want to do is say, hey, how are we actually, look, Christians, we, 
we, we know that there's something to this. But are we reading this well? And, and I think, I hope that the, that, that the representative, you know, I, I did this a little bit. It's not comprehensive in this chapter, mm-hmm. but that, you know, by representing a couple of different voices and a couple of different opinions as to how this could be interpreted by faithful interpreters, I just say, hey, it's, it's reasonable to suggest that, that there, this is maybe not as open as, and shut as we thought it, it, it was, and maybe what the New Testament writers are doing isn't exactly what we thought they were doing either. Yeah. That's what I'm trying to get at here. Yeah, and I think that's maybe it's for our audience too to, to simplify it for them. It's, um, I think a lot of us, like, we, we have the answer. So, like, everything gets filtered through the answers. Like, okay, the that's answer it. here, yeah. answer this, answer this, versus, like, well, how, like, how, did, they, how did they get there? Like, what's, let's, let's, show right. their, let's show their work. Right. That, you know what? Uh, scratch what I just said and just add what you said, because that's, that's precisely it, right? I mean, we can look, but we, but none of us actually believe that that's the right way to almost do anything. We actually believe that processes facilitate a deeper and more committed understanding yeah. to truth. Yeah. So we don't just jump to the, the right answer for a mathematics problem, right? I'm going to go home yeah. and do mathematic homework with my, my, my son. But we actually believe that going through the process and, and utilizing the formulas and plugging yeah. in the variables and all of that is a better way of coming to even a con- even a conclusion. And sometimes we come to different conclusions, mm-hmm. or we, we we understand with more profundity exactly why the conclusion was was reached. Yeah. That's really what I'm doing here. So yeah, it fills it out, and then you, when you read what they're doing in the New Testament, like like it it. It expands what they're doing. Like you see more of what they're doing. I was like, I, I, I see, I see how you got there, and now that I see how you got there, I see what's happening with Jesus, what's happening with with any one of these prophecies that was here, and it's a pattern. I see this in a bigger way than I would have just seen. It's like, oh, that's Jesus here, and then that's Jesus here too. That's great, kind of like one to one ratio. It's not like you like you want to see the buildup, you want to see the tension, yeah. Yeah. and then how they yeah, how they inf- unfold this New Testament in a yeah. in a deeper, more profound way. Because yeah. you want to almost walk with them as they're writing it in their real time you go back in time with them and walk through it with them and like you're saying if you start with the answer which is hard why you said you need deliberate slow approach yeah and if you start if you start with the answer and you try to over filter it first you almost flatten the question yeah and oversimplify the question there are there are so this is an example in which we which we do this and um so I think, for example, the lamb imagery that we see in Isaiah 53, like mm-hmm. it's very clear. I mean, at least to me, when, when scholars say it's very clear, that means it's not that clear, right? But <laughs> yeah. it's, it's just kind of clear to me that Isaiah is playing on this Passover tradition. Oh, yeah. This, yeah. this lamb. It seems that way, right? Uh, we see that, that Isaiah is a very clear middle step between the Passover Mm-hmm. And the New Testament, and what the, mm-hmm. what the New Testament writers say, the New Testament writers flesh the imagery out much more for us. Even Jesus's, even even John's comment to Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Like we, as as people that have been in church for many years, we're kind of like, oh, I get it, you know, sacrificial. Like, think about what that. Why is he calling Jesus a lamb? Right? Yeah. Like, what does yeah. that mean? Take away the sin of the world. What's happening? So that's one thing. But also, and this is, I don't touch on this actually in the book, but this is another thing that Christians will be familiar with, and hopefully they'll get an understanding as to why I'm trying to trace some of these 
motifs, and that is the mention of Melchizedek in, mm -hmm. in the Psalms, right? Yep. That's another one, right? So we have yeah. this Torah reference to Melchizedek, then we have the psalmist bringing up Melchizedek, and then we have Melchizedek showing up in, in the book of Hebrews. Now, then we we also have 11Q Melchizedek in the Dead Sea Scrolls. We have mentions yeah. of Melchizedek. We had Matt Amadi on for his, uh, for his book on yeah, Melchizedek and Psalm 110. Yeah, so he, okay, he went wonderful. through all this stuff, yeah. Yeah, yeah, wonderful. So again, we see that there that the, the New Testament writer is using an image. We can't just say, oh, fulfilled prophecy, Old Testament. He was predicting exactly. But sometimes they're being creative. Sometimes they're utilizing yeah. patterns. They're, 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 dem they're demonstrating certain the sort of the culmination of certain symbolism just want to figure out what they're doing by giving the 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 first text or the more original text we could say the old testament text it's it's proper dues in its context yeah yeah and i'd say um the holy spirit knew what he was doing so revealing only so much to the human author at that time while they were writing which as new testament writers now we know more and we read we as New Testament readers, we see now how brilliantly it grew to completion. And now that the New Testament scriptures are revealed to us and we see the finished work of Christ. So even Isaiah 53, we're like, wow, that was brilliant. And the human author at the time was just writing what the Holy Spirit at that time was revealing to him. Yeah, I would say, you know, what I what I um, forget exactly what this quote is in the book, but I I quote Walter Kaiser's idea of yep. the, you know, the, this whole idea of this there being something in a seed form initially. Yep. And I think that we see this yeah. repeatedly throughout the Old Testament. And that's why to go back to your question, Nick, the progressive reading is important because a seed is a point in time. You see a seed in a point in time, but a yep. seed flourishes, right? It eventually grows. But you can't look at just the seed or, or the stalk. But if you see the seed and the, you just have to remember that you're looking at this in, in terms of a process. You're not, you're not going to be able to see the flower from the very beginning, but you can still learn something as the seed flourishes. Yeah. And you can still apply principles as the seed flourishes. You don't just look at the flower, right? Mm. Um, and so I, I think in our, in our reading of the Old Testament and our reading of passages uh, like the ones that we've talked about today, it's important to recognize as we're progressive readers that yeah. we, we, we can still learn as something is flourishing, which we see repeatedly in different in different areas of the Old Testament, we're at a period of time here. We're learning what we can about this particular in this particular section of our reading. There's more to come. Yeah. Man, if we had more time, we would <laughs> we would ask about Daniel seven. Yes, and a lot I'm more. So, yeah, was, yeah, a lot. Yeah, Daniel yeah. seven is a hard. Is, he he yeah. went for the jugular right away. Yeah. He did go for the jugular, but are you saying we ran out of time? Because that's fine with me if this is what you want to talk about now. If you could sum it up maybe in like two two minutes or a minute, sure. But other than that. Impossible. impossible. Yeah, Pass. I know. It is. It is. It's impossible. <laughs> but it, it was like, that's a huge one. Yeah. It's Daniel 7. Well, why, so. why do you bring up Daniel 7 now? I, I, I don't get the connection to what. To what I, was just think, I was just thinking of uh, like like future eschatology tying in, uh, you know, end times stuff, you know, going towards, you know, the people a lot of times bring up Daniel seven. Nick, Nick likes the end times a lot. I, I see. Well, you know, Looking here's forward. what I'll say just very briefly about the reading of passages like Daniel seven. Uh, the, the fact that there are, uh, that there may be futuristic elements yeah. in the, in those passages don't necessarily negate 
what can be learned in the here or now. And I think yeah. that's what the here or now. And I think that that's yep. what, 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 what Peter was also getting at with one of his questions, right? So it does, I mean, Christian people tend to think that there are futuristic elements to certain prophecies, mm -hmm. uh, that there are indeed what we would call predictions. Uh, so that's not, you know, that's not, many Christians would not dispute that. What we would say is, what we would dispute is how to approach these hermeneutically so that we can continue to learn about the, the here and now. Yeah. And that's where I think, if I can just reiterate what I've said very briefly, the idea of reading to recognize the characteristics of God displayed through a particular text and how God relates to humankind, how God even will relate to humankind, how God relates to, to his creation. Those types of things, I think, are undervalued principles yeah. of reading. Uh, we, we, we frequently try to take things to what we consider to be the culmination. So we'll, we'll try to, you know, make this an altar call or whatever it might be. But sometimes, <laughs> no, really, really. I mean, sometimes, yeah. but sometimes what can move human beings is yeah. recognizing the characteristics of our great God that are depicted holistically, not in, in mm -hmm. its entirety, but holistically yep. through the written, the, the, the written word. And, yeah. and I think if we focus on this in our preaching and our teaching, mm -hmm. we focus on how good our God is as displayed through the, we'll have a better idea of who God is. And that will indeed bring people into his truth. He will use that, right? To bring people into, into his truth and to be even more lovers of, of the word. Cool. Awesome. Well, I love it. Well, Dr. Hernandez, thank you so much for coming on for, writing this book for uh, being a, a nerd on Semitic philology and, and uh, helping others to, to become the nerds in the same thing because it just helps us be better readers of the Bible and, and see some of these patterns and, and texts and, and all these great things and, and textures, which is, makes us better readers of the Bible ourselves. Um, so thanks for writing this and, and thanks for all the work that you do. Yeah, thank thank you, you for having me on. I really appreciate it. What a, what a great conversation. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you. Of course. Hey guys, thanks so much for listening to the episode of our podcast, Guilt, Grace, Gratitude. And if you go to our show notes, as a reminder, there is a link to Patreon and you can find out how to become a bridge builder. Yeah, we've got five different support levels and the levels go from uh, just a, a $5 donation to help keep the lights on and, and get some equipment all the way up to you guys get to be part of our decision making process for episodes for content, for authors, for guests, whoever it may be. And you guys get consistent conversations, maybe even since our episodes, the second that we record them, instead of having to wait for episodes to come out. So look at that, see what you wanna do. As part of that, we have a goal to get about $1,000 a month. That's to cover some costs, get some new equipment, and just hire some people as well. And also, if you guys can rate and review us on iTunes, on Spotify, on any one of your podcasting platforms, this is the number one way besides word of mouth that word gets out about what we're doing. So we hope to see you guys next week.